Thank you guys for leading us in song this morning. Uh, if you um, have a Bible, you want to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 4, looking at 1 to 6, 1 to 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, if you just want to put your hand up, we'd love to just put one in your hands to follow along. If anyone, don't be shy. I see no hands. No, can I get one? Okay. Uh, no, I don't, I don't see anyone. But if you, wanna, if you guys are already there, I'm going to turn there with you. 1 Timothy 4, uh, 1 to 5. We'll be reading from there in just a moment. Just as, as we get started, do we live in a time when truth is told? It's interesting, just the murmurs. Uh, are there any lies going around? And right now, I'm just thinking outside the church, but then I want to turn it in the church. Are there any false teachers? Just, just a few to bring before you. There's one prominent a person who likes to talk about living your best life now. Live it up. Go for it. It's, it's all about you. Make the most of the time that you have. Focus on yourself. Live your best life now. There's, a, there's another false teaching within the church. It kind of goes like this. Looking at Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, he humbled himself and came down and was clothed in human flesh. But they'll say, no, he he emptied himself, and he put his omnipresence in his back pocket. And Jesus did everything in the power of the Holy Spirit, so then you, in a right, right relationship with God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can do greater, miraculous things than Jesus did. You can be better than Jesus. That's another false teaching that is, is around these days. And of course, maybe one we all have known and heard, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. God wants you to be healthy, and if you just follow him, like, you won't get sick. Everything will work out. You'll have tons of money. Think, how does, how does that, that message can work, in one sense, in a first world country? Like, we're, we're like the rich of the rich in Canada. And so you, you share that message, you're like, well, I think we're actually doing okay. You take that message to a third world country where people are struggling to have any type of food to eat and the person who's sharing that message is the one who's cashing in. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. How does that work with inflation? <laughs> and the, the list could go on and on. I just wanted to just put a few before you. For sure there are wolves in sheep clothes within the church. That's just a reality. There's false teaching within the church. My prayer, this message we're going to be looking at today is one, it will give us a sense of urgency uh, to the time that we live in. It will gain a sense of urgency that will we'll get a greater clarity in terms of what to look for, false teachers, and what to focus on, God's truth. And then the way the passage finishes, I hope we have a a greater heart full of thankfulness. And you'll, you'll see as we look at the passage, if you want to stand with me as we read 1 Timothy 4, a 1 to 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe 
and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. And before I continue, I'd just like to again go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, what a, what a passage, what a time we live in. Lord, we need to hear from you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, by your work, give us open ears, give us open hearts. May your word go forward. May you do your work in us. Those who do not know you, may you give them faith. May you allow them to see their need for Jesus Christ and call upon him. Lord, you know what each one of us is dealing with. I pray you administer to us uh, through your word. Rebuke us where we need it. Exhort us. Encourage us. Do this work uh, through your word now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've, I've titled this message, Knowing a Wolf from a Sheep. That's really the first kind of two-thirds. It doesn't, not so much in the, the last third. But the first verse, I really want us to gain urgency. That's my desire. We'll see if the Lord will do in it. I want us to gain urgency. In verse 1, Paul begins this section. Now the Spirit expressly says, as he begins with now, Paul's kind of going to a different uh, Focus within the letter we've been looking at for the past number of months is focus on leadership. He has talked about false teachers. He has talked about what Timothy needs to be doing in terms of worship in chapter 2. Who should be leading the church? What should they be holding to? And now kind of in this section, he, he kind of changes his attention again. Bringing it back to these false teachers and maybe some of the teaching that was going on at the church at Ephesus, which Timothy was brought to to deal with. Now the Spirit expressly says, now as, as Paul writes that, as he says, this is what the Spirit says. Paul was an apostle. He was a writer of Scripture. He wrote the inspired words of God. And now if, I, if I'm reading Scripture and I'm seeing what's there, I would maybe use different language. I was saying, I see what God has written. I'm encouraged. I'm prompted by His Spirit. I'm led by the Word of God, written by the Spirit of God. I'm, I'm just saying, as Paul says, as the Spirit expressly says, if someone comes up to me and said, hey, the Spirit expressly says this to me, I'd say, really? Not in the authoritative way that Paul's saying here in Scripture. Just, just a, a side note. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith in later times. Wants to think about that. Does that mean the last days? William Mount says this, from the time of the experience of Pentecost, the church viewed itself as being in the last days. Let me show you that. Just a, just a few places in the New Testament, the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. If you know scripture, this is the day. So Jesus, he ascended into heaven. The disciples are waiting in Jerusalem for 40 or 50 days, and they're praying. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came down upon them. And they're going and they're speaking in different languages that people in Jerusalem who heard, they heard God being talked about in their own mother tongue. And they're like, what is going on? In Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 15, 
Peter addresses everyone. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 o'clock. People are like, what is wrong with these people? Have they been drinking? So Peter addresses that right away. No, they're not drunk. Verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Notice what he quotes, and he's saying this is being fulfilled at this time in Pentecost. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he continues on with this prophecy. And he's saying, hey, in the last days, this is what's going to happen. This is being fulfilled right now. That's what Peter was saying. You're like, oh, okay, I don't know. Really? Are they in the last days? It's all throughout the New Testament. A couple other places for you. Hebrews uh, chapter 1, 1 to 2. The writer of this book, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Just one more example. You're like, I don't know if I'm convinced these are the last days, if they thought they were in the last days. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 20. Peter wrote this, speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The early church believed they were in the last days. Paul, even writing his letter in 2 Timothy, in 3 verses 1 to 7, he spoke about the last days in this time. I just want you to get that sense of urgency if we are in the last days. And I'll just compare what I'm going to read from 1 Timothy 3, a later letter, how does this compare to today? 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 to 6, Paul wrote this, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid so, such people. I just want to show throughout the New Testament it speaks of we are in the last days. And as we, as we read that, as we look at Paul's letter to Timothy, we should feel pressured for time. Like no killing time, no wasting days. And I don't mean like you're always in a rush, you're always saying things fast, you're speeding everywhere, you get pulled over, you're like, officer, we're in the last days, so you know we got places to be. But, uh, but we, should, it should, we should feel a sense of urgency in the lives that we live. We're not just like lollygagging, sitting back, killing time, like we are in the last days. And you think if they were in the last days and the day of Pentecost and like 2,000 years have passed, how much closer are we now to the return of Jesus Christ? And so it's not like, oh man, we just got a lot of time to kill. Like, no, we should have a sense of urgency if we are in the last days. And we could talk about why we think, hey, it's getting a lot closer to the return of Christ. I believe it is. So I believe that's even anchored within this message. We should have a sense of urgency. Know the times. Look at this, this second part. Know that some will depart. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. This is what Scripture said. Some will depart. They will fall away. They will abandon 
the faith. We already see this. We have examples of this within the New Testament. You have Judas, one of the disciples of Jesus, right there with him for three and a half years and turned on him. Fell away. We have a, a guy named Demas. If you go through the New Testament, he appears with the Apostle Paul, Colossians 4.14. Paul's in prison. He's writing letters to different people. And there's a guy who's there, Demas. He's also with the guy Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. There's Demas. He's with Paul. But then 2 Timothy, in a 4 verse 10, Paul says this. He's like, I'm left all alone. Demas, because he loved the things of this world, has deserted me. Even in Paul's letter here in 1 Timothy, we have in 1.6 talking about certain persons by swerving from these, a good conscience, sincere faith, have wandered away into vain discussion. In 1.19, by rejecting this, again, rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Some will fall away. A way for us even to understand it, to frame that, you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 8, looking at the parable of the sowers. Luke chapter 8, verses 11 to 15. You know, Jesus, he told this parable. I'll just read the, as he explains this parable. I, I love it. This is one of the, there's other parables. Where like, I think this is what it means. This one, Jesus just explained it. No one needs to think of what it means. This is what it means. Uh, Verse 11, Jesus says this. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, right? He told this story of someone going out and sowing seed, kind of throwing seed, and then four different outcomes. What happens to the seed? The seed is the word of God. It's being shared. Verse 12, the one along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. That's the first outcome. Don't continue on. Verse 13, the second outcome. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in times of testing fall away. Do they, is it grow? No. Second one, doesn't grow, doesn't keep going on. The third outcome. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear But as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Third outcome, does it? No, it doesn't carry on. It's only the fourth outcome that we see that it's actually something planted, something grown. Verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So just, just think about that. We have the parable of the story of other examples within Scripture, there will be some who will fall away, some who will depart. We know people will leave the faith because the Spirit tells us it will still break our hearts. It will leave us crying, out in prayer, unanswered questions. John MacArthur says this, as the revelation from the Spirit in Scripture shows, apostasy is predictable. And inevitable. There will always be those who make a temporary response to the gospel but have no genuine faith in God. And the reason he says no genuine faith in God, we'll just show you a couple places. If you look at 1 John 2 19, it 
among other places. 1 John 2.19. I know, I, I cheated. I marked them beforehand. <laughs> 1 John 2.19, it says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they all are not of us. Because friends, the scripture teaches, I think quite clearly, the, the perseverance of the saints, the continuing of the faith, that like Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. And if you're like, yes, I've put my faith and trust in Christ, like you will continue on. If it's a genuine saving faith, you will finish to the end because God has his hand upon you. 1 John 5, 4, it says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. God's saving faith is also a sustaining faith and will keep you. But again, it says there in Scripture that some will fall away. And, and what do we do? We pray for those people. We reach out to them. We share the gospel with them. We plead with them. We never make the decision like, oh, I, I guess maybe you're the ones that Scripture's talking about. No. While we have time, we call people to Jesus Christ. And when we see people starting to wander from the face, starting to turn their back, we, we reach out to them. We pray for them. We plead with them. Come back until that time is done. And time is no more. Friends, that should give us an increasing sense of urgency. Going back there to the letter of Timothy, talking about these people who are departing from the faith, and later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. By devoting or paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's, but it's not, though, that, that all of a sudden we're just physically or spiritually seeing all these demons. They're everywhere. They're teaching. what They grab hold of humans and use them to spread their false teachings. So when we're thinking about, like, well, where these deceptive teachings come from, they come from false teachers. Ephesians 6, 12, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle, but yet still we see that demons use other humans for this deceptive teaching. And we're like, okay, well, what does that look like? It's not always clear. Just, just think about this in Matthew 4, 6, the temptation of Jesus. As, as the devil's tempting Jesus, the devil quotes scripture. Verse 5 and 6, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, this is Matthew 4, 5, and 6, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, the devil quoting scripture, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And then Jesus actually just quotes scripture back, puts them in his place. But it's interesting, even the devil is quoting scripture. It says in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, talking about false teachers, for such men are false apostles, dealing within the church at Corinth. They're deceitful workmen, disguising themselves 
as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise that in his servants, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. So that's the thing. It's very deceptive from far away. False teachers look like sheep. Right from far away, we're like, I, I think it seems to be accurate. But man, think of the warning within Scripture of false teachers. I want to bring that before your attention. Even the warning to the church at Ephesus. I've went here a number of times lately. Paul, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, he stops on his way to Jerusalem. He meets with the, the current elders of Ephesus. He prays for them. He encourages them. He gives them this warning. In Acts 20, Verse 29 and 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is, this is Paul to the Ephesian elders, like this is what's coming. Know what's going to happen in, in 1 Timothy, like it is happening. It has happened. Now they're trying to deal with those false teachers that are there. I just want to think of all the warnings here within Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 16. Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. We're going to talk about how do you recognize them. But this warning of false teachers in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4, Timothy, Paul writes this to Timothy, for the time is coming, and I would believe this is the time we are in, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Is this the day we live in? Are there false teachers? Are there everywhere? Jesus also said, Matthew 24, 11, talking about the end of days, talking about the, the time closest to when he would return. Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. I think we are already in that time. It's only going to be increasing. So we should have a sense of urgency to know the times. If, are we in the last days? I believe so. Note, some will depart from the faith. We will plead with them. We will pray with them. And know there are false teachers. This is clear in Scripture. So I hope we have that sense of urgency continuing on in the letter. I hope we can get some clarity. First thinking, how do you, how do you spot these false teachers? How do you spot these wolves? Verses 2 to first part of 3, when he talks about that they have deceitful spirits, teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. There's a hypocrisy. Their, their words don't match their deeds. And it's interesting, this word liars, it only appears here in the New Testament, just this one place. Robert Yarborough says this, the word translated liars describes people who, like actors, play parts so well that their words have the ring of truth. Not even as we see, like, what are they teaching? It's not that people stand up like, hey, I'm a, I'm a false teacher and say things so disastrous, just so absurd. You're like, oh, clearly. 
But actually, it's going to be something like really close to the truth, that has a ring of truth, or mostly true. But just think, would you have, if I had like a glass of water, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's just water. There's just a, a little bit cyanide, poison, like just a little though. You're like, I'm not touching that water. That's what false teachings, right? Like there's truth and it's just, it's off. It's off just a little bit. That's what these people were doing through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. All throughout this letter, having a good conscience is exemplified in 1.5 and 1.19 and 3.9. And again, think of having a good conscience, like being convicted. Like, I don't think this is the right thing to do. You're turning from it. You're repenting. You're trusting in God, having a good conscience, kind of like a, a check. You're like, oh, no, I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I shouldn't be going here, or I should be doing this. A good conscience. These people, though, have a seared conscience, as in it's broken. It's no longer working. If you can imagine, like, maybe like a GPS that's driving, you're going the wrong direction. It's like, turn around, turn around. And you're like, break it. Don't want to hear it anymore. Keep driving. Or it's like, danger, danger, throw it out the window. Right? That's, what, that's the kind of lies that's being portrayed, this seared conscience. Maybe at one point God was like, hey, don't do this, don't be about this. It's like, forget that. And so what you could, how you could spot them, I think, is because of their character or lack of it. Right? If you, if you would know a tree by its fruit, maybe you can't see it from far away. You're like, I think... I think those are oranges. And then you, you get closer, you're like, oh no, they're lemons. It's by a closeness, I think, to the false teachers that you'd be able to see from far away. Oh, it's a sheep. You get closer, you start to see their character, you start to see all like the gaps. Someone walking around with a seared conscience, it'll show up in their lives when they're not holding to the clear teachings of the word of God, when, if their lives are going against scripture, if they're always having excuses, I don't think you're supposed to do this. Like, no, 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 it's okay because. I don't think you're supposed to be with other women that's not your wife. No, no, it's okay because God, he actually wants us to be together. I don't, I don't think you're supposed to like be all about money and success and all about you. No, no, it's okay, God wants to bless me. So just going against clear teachings of scripture to draw people in. So we need to be aware of that. I think that's one significant way how do you spot them is from their character or lack thereof. You have to be close in which to see it. How else do you spot them going on? I think because of their teaching doesn't line up. In verse three, this is part of their teaching. Those whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Just think about that. We see some of the specifics here that they're facing in the church in Ephesus. In 1 verse 4, it talks about these false teachers. We're talking about myths and genealogies, kind of just some obscure focus on the Old Testament law, holding people to that, uh, to some sort of, of, of level that they needed to meet in order to be right with God. Excuse me. So it's interesting, one of the first things they go to is food. It's like part of their teaching, we don't know exactly what it is, but like if you eat this food, it'll affect your relationship with God. Like you won't be in a right standing with God. So stay away from this food. And then we see they're also teaching that marriage 
is forbidden. That marriage is bad. It's, it's so interesting if you think about it. And MacArthur, he, he noted this. I won't read the actual quote, but we expect that Satan is going to like maybe attack the Trinity or attack the deity of Jesus. And that's what we're watching for and kind of sneaks in and starts to like, ah, maybe you shouldn't eat that. But you think marriage, that's a significant aspect that uh, calling people not, not to be. We don't know the reasons why exactly what was going on there. Some maybe think maybe these false teachers were trying to get people back to like a pre-fall, like before the fall, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They're like, hey, if we went back, you just need to eat vegetables. And marriage maybe didn't exist, though it existed on the sixth day of creation. So I don't know how that would work out so well. But be, think about this. Be wary. Anyone that says, hey, mar- oh, we forbid marriage. It's interesting. The Catholic Church, even today, they don't allow the priests to get married. Forbid marriage. You're like, I, I don't know. We're going to look. That's, that's, that's off. <laughs> that teaching is off. So I don't know what it was, but he couldn't eat certain foods. And, and somehow following these practices, forbidding marriage, not eating certain foods, like if you did these things, it would bring you closer to God. That, that's what was being taught in the church. The teaching was off. It's similar to Colossians 3, or Colossians 2, sorry. Paul, in talking about the, the false teaching there, he says this. Colossians 2, 23, in summary, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, like not eating, touching certain things, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Like there's this outward act, but it doesn't do anything inwardly. It doesn't actually do anything spiritually. It's interesting, even in Hebrews uh, 13, 9, again, maybe dealing with something similar. That people doing some sort of outward act involving food, will this make God love me more? Hebrews 13, 9 says this, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So think about this, though. I hope you can see this. Watch out anytime it's the gospel plus. Anytime it's the gospel plus. And by the gospel, I mean that Jesus Christ came and he died for sinners. And that we only believe and trust in him by grace. By nothing that we've deserved, nothing that we've earned, but by simply God's good grace. We believe he died for our sins. And by believing and trusting him, we are forgiven. We are made right with the holy God, the gospel. But anyone that's like, okay, yeah, yeah, the gospel, and you shouldn't eat, you shouldn't eat certain foods. The gospel, and, and, you, and you shouldn't get married. Anytime it's the gospel plus. Could be the different ways to get right with God. Anyone who would teach, hey, yeah, yeah, the gospel. Plus, you need to be baptized in order to be made right with God. Like, no, 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 baptism's actually in response to you've been saved, you've been changed, and now you're like, I'm following Jesus, I'm going to get baptized. Or anyone would say, hey, it's the gospel, yes, but you need to be in this church in order to be saved. No, no, like, 
the, the gospel is free to go out. There's, there's so many churches who are teaching and preaching the truth, and God's at work, and none of us are perfect. The, the gospel, and you need to confess your sins to a priest. Like, no, no, you can go straight to the Father through Jesus Christ. Watch out anytime it's the gospel plus. So you need to see false teachers, it's not going to line up. It's not going to line up with the truth. I thought I want you to see in the second part of verse 3, know the truth. Just brilliant titles. I'm, I'm joking. Like, okay. <laughs> know the truth. The second part of verse 3. So they had this false teaching, abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Marriage and food, God created to be received with thanksgiving, right? We have Genesis 1.31. On the sixth day of creation, God looked at everything he had made. It was very good. It was very good. And if you know scripture, Genesis 2 is actually going back into the sixth day of creation. It's going into the details of how it happened. And Adam was made first, and he was without a helper. And he was naming the animals, and God saw it was not good for him to be alone, so created Eve for them to come together in marriage. God created marriage on the sixth day of creation. Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And what did God call after the sixth day of creation? He said, it's, it's very good. Marriage is very good. So holding to the truth, if someone's like, I forbid marriage, it's not right. You're like, I don't know. God said it was very good. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. So we, we go to scripture. Think about just different com convictions people have on foods. We have Genesis 9.3. This is after the flood. Because before the flood, we were vegetarians. After the flood, Genesis 9.3, God says this, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. It's, it's actually really interesting. You start to think about it, how much the Bible talks about food and, like, and what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat. So in the Old Testament, you have these uh, different uh, laws within what's unclean and what's clean for the Jewish people set apart. And so you have that. But then as you go into the New Testament, looking at Acts chapter 10, or bring it to a few places. There's so many places the Bible talks about food. Acts chapter 10, 9 to 16. Peter has this vision. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the house top about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Like there's these laws, I'm holding to them. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. 
So like Peter is being shown, hey, what God says clean, don't call unclean. And of course, you can make the argument, it's actually that he's supposed to go and talk with this Gentile after. But I think also God's talking about the, the food there, the animals that you thought were unclean, God says are clean. There's other places we can go to. Romans uh, chapter 14. Thinking about food. I know by the end of this message, everyone will be thinking about food. It'll be lunchtime. Romans 14, 1 to 6. This is talking about people who are arguing about different things. Hey, which, which day should we worship on? Should we not eat food? Should we eat food? What food should we eat? It addresses it. Romans 14, 1 to 6. As for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Take it out of context. Weak people eat only vegetables. <laughs> no, it's talking about people who are abstaining from eating certain meat, like meat sacrificed to idols. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. It's like there's this, these convictions. Like, I don't think we should eat that. Like, okay, I, I think we should. Let's be fully convinced of that, honor the Lord. And if I'm convinced of that, I'm not holding you to that. I think there's freedom in the Lord. So it's not this teaching that we see within the New Testament. Hey, this is what we eat. This is what we don't eat. I think, no, there's actually great freedom. Be convinced in your own heart, but really if you want to get down to like, what is it about? Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not, man, I eat this, like I'm not right with God. If I don't eat it, I will be. No. Make those decisions. It's actually, it's about your faith in Jesus Christ. And just one other thing, 1 Corinthians 8, 8. I love how Paul puts it, talking about food sacrifice to idols. Isn't it a common time they would sacrifice the food to idols and sell it in the market? And Paul talking about if you're convicted of that, like don't eat it. But hey, God, he actually owns everything. So you can eat it. But I love what it says, 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. It's not like drawing you closer spiritually or pulling you away the food you eat. I see this within the New Testament. You don't see a command to not eat certain foods to draw you closer to God. So again, that's why you got to know the truth. You're like, ah, that's off. What is the truth? It says, in, again, in Paul's letter in Timothy, those who believe and know the truth. Like, that's how we should be able to identify Christians. Hey, what is a Christian? Like, well, they believe and they know the truth. And believe what? All throughout this letter we looked at last week, the mystery of godliness, Christ. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 verse 15, that he's a mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave his life as a ransom. 
This is the truth that we're talking about. Know and believe the truth. But this belief and this truth is life-changing. It's not just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. James 2.19 talks about just people who just, yeah, I just believe. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. When we're talking about, like, belief in the truth, belief in Jesus Christ, we're talking about, like, change of allegiance type belief. Forgive me for this analogy. I'll say it right from the start. I've been playing these days with my kids, uh, Morial Brothers. And, and Morial Brothers, like, King Bowser has come and taken over the land, took the princess, and every kind of battle you beat, every castle you beat, every level you beat, there's a Bowser flag that you jump on, and it goes down, and then, like, a Morial flag goes up. It's a change of allegiance. That's, that's what it means to actually believe in Jesus Christ for saving faith. We're all f- flying our own, the South flag, I reign here. This is my castle. You actually believe in Jesus Christ saving faith. That flag goes down and Jesus Christ goes up. Like that's what we're talking about. It's not like, yeah, yeah, I believe. I'm trusting. It's like, no, he actually has, has every part of me. He has access to every part of my life. And man, there's a lot of work to do still. But it's all the Lord's and he's helped me walk through it. Believe and know the truth. Believe and know the truth, the gospel, sound doctrine, God's word. Just turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. What does this look like to know the truth? We'll start in verse 11, talking about how God gave the apostles, the prophets. Sorry, Ephesians 4, 11. How God, how he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It's part of our job, pastors, elders, teachers. Equip the saints for the work of ministry. What's, what's the goal, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The, the aim we're going towards that we'd all be mature in Christ to equip the saints, do the work of ministry, so we're all growing into spiritual maturity. And what's also the result of doing this, verse 14, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Do you get that? Like, and when we're young in our faith, someone's like, hey, like, this is what you should be about in your faith. You're like, oh, okay, over, oh, okay, maybe not. Oh, no, maybe it's over here. We, like, run over this way. We're carried about to and fro by the winds of doctrine, the waves of doctrine. But as we grow up in the Lord, as we grow into spiritual maturity, we're not running here and there. We're knowing the truth. We're seeing what is false. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's how we need to know the truth, by speaking the truth in love, by proclaiming the truth, by making it known. Right? I've, talked, I've used this analogy before, but like when you're teaching kids in school math, one plus one equals two. Right? You're not like, hey, one plus one doesn't equal three. One plus one doesn't equal four. One plus one doesn't equal, and you go on, and you keep showing them all the, 
the ways it doesn't equal. No, you show them what is true. So then someone's like, hey, one plus one equals four. No, no, it doesn't, because I know what it equals. We just got to talk about what's true. Like if you go to the zoo and you're like, you want to show someone maybe who has never seen a giraffe. It's like they've heard about a giraffe. They've never seen. And you don't describe to them every other animal. Well, a giraffe is not a bear. It's not big. It doesn't have big claws, big paws. It's not a gopher. It's not short. It's not a monkey. No, you tell them what a giraffe looks like. It's got this huge neck, these long legs. It's spotted. You won't miss it if you know what it is you're looking for. If you know the truth, we don't have to know everything else that's false. That's the key. Know the truth. And you'll be able to see, like, oh, no, that's off. Friends, so if we are, are we in the last days? Are there false teachers? Are there more coming? What another reason to, like, man, be in the word of God? Like, we read it because it's spiritual food for our soul. There's so many. Here's another, chalk it up for another reason to, like, set aside time, open up scripture, know what God's word said, because the deception is going to get, it's going to increase. Know the truth. Again, what's, what's the truth? Know that Jesus Christ, there's only one way to heaven. John 14, 6, you said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, verse 12, there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. It's Jesus Christ. He's 100% God, 100% man. He died on the cross for our sins. There's no other way in which to be saved. That is the truth. If anyone comes and says, yeah, Jesus, we got to eat the right food. That's false. Jesus, but a, but a certain church. My friends of mine, we were in uh, South Korea. We, had a, we knew of someone. They were going to this church. They're like, is it a cult? Can you go talk to the, go talk to the pastors? We're like, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. As we were going up to the pastor's office, we looked at this picture on the wall. It was a picture of heaven. And they had all the different tribes, countries, nations kind of represented but then in the background was the church building. You're like, whoa, red flag. I'll, I'll never forget it. It was like the most shocking thing. If someone says, yeah, yeah, Jesus, but it, it's only in the confines of this building, like, run. Any, anyone, and here's like a, a clear one, anyone who like lifts up self and puts Jesus back, that's not true. No, what's true is like John the Baptist, John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. Know the truth, and it'll give us clarity. Again, clarity to spot these false teachers, their lack of clarity, or sorry, lack of character. Their teaching doesn't line up, but then just know what is true. And if you know what is true, you don't have to know what is false. It'll just stick out. And in that, the, the latter part of this letter, uh, I want us to have a sense of urgency, greater clarity, but then a heart of thankfulness. As, as he continues, verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The food, and, food and marriage are good. This verse, even verse 5, 
Or verse 4, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. It's not saying, it's not a license to do anything. Drugs or sexual morality or, just, or even just overeating, just gluttony, keep eating. Hey, like, just give thanks. So it's, it's not saying that. What's verse 5 mean? It's made holy by the word of God in prayer. I believe it's talking about that God's already spoken to this. Genesis 1.31 is very good. The food he made, the mar- marriage that he made, it is very good. It could also be talking about the freedom found in Christ to enjoy the things God has made. But again, think about that. There's these false teachers were forbidding marriage. The truth of the matter, God said, it is very good. It is very good. Proverbs 18.22 says this, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now again, you may be single, maybe widowed, you may be dating. I'm speaking specifically to marriage as this text does because it was like the false teachers are saying, hey, that's bad. Scripture says it's good. So I just want to make that point. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Right? We don't forbid marriage. We want to encourage marriage. If you're struggling in your marriage, we want to fight with you for your marriage. If you're struggling at all, reach out to people. Reach out to the leaders of the church. Maybe a trusted friend that they pray and walk with you through it. We want to celebrate marriage. Right? Marriage is, is a thing that the Lord loves. We want to thank God for our marriages. If you're married, invest time in your marriage. Just think about this, like, marriage has a bad rap today. Right, you talk about marriage, people are like, oh, marriage. It's just like dragged through the mud. I was thinking about this, think about this yourself if you are married. Is my marriage a witness to the next generation that it is good? Where people hear all the time, yeah, marriage isn't good. Ball and chain, blah, blah, blah. But if, if people look at your marriage or the next generation, young people, they're like, ah, oh, I think marriage is good. What witness do our marriages give? It's something we should be thanking God for. If you'll notice just in this section in verse 3, it talks about the foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Verse 4, nothing needs to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Verse 5 talks about receiving with prayer. So two times Thanksgiving, one time prayer. I think it's saying the same thing over and over again. We should thank God for our food. (laughs) It's really that simple. Look, it's made holy. I think he's talking about food by the word of God and prayer. We should thank God for it. I don't know if McDonald's is included. (laughs) We should ask for forgiveness. But just joking. But just think about, I don't know about you, if you have a tradition when you eat food, you're like, I don't know why we pray. We, we just pray. This is just something we do. I just want to show you the biblical precedent of why do we pray before food. Just looking, Matthew 4, 14, 19. This is Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you could understand, I'm almost done. Matthew 14, 19. So as Jesus is feeding the 5,000, what, they take two loaves and five 
fish. Sorry, five loaves and two fish. Jesus, verse 18, says, bring them here. Verse 19, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He broke the loaves and gave thanks to the disciples. Disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and they were satisfied. He says this blessing in Luke chapter 24, verse 30. This is the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 24, verse 30. And he's sitting with them. He's appearing in their midst. And they're going to eat food. When he's sitting at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Jesus, before he ate food, he would bless it. He would give thanks for it. We're like, okay, so that's one reason we should pray before we eat. Just think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what's the next line? Give us this day our daily bread. This is how we are hard to pray. And it's a word to pray and ask God for provision for the food that we eat. Then when we have food to eat, we should thank God for it. Do you stop and thank God for the food that you eat? Friends, this is like the easiest, clearest application of this section. And just think when, you know, leaving a Sunday morning, like, what should I do? Pray and thank God before you eat. And I, and I mean, like, actually pray. How about you? I get into this routine. I'm like, hey, I'm actually, I'm hungry. I'm like, hey, kids, be quiet for a moment. And I'm going to say my quick prayer. And we're going to eat. And am I really turning and thanking God? I'm, I'm speaking about myself. I don't know about you. If you have a busy life, we have busy lives. We're like, go, 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 go. And what happens? If you eat two times a day, three times a day, you have three times to stop. And look up and thank the Lord and pray and give thanks. And instead of turning into just another thing, hey, we're doing, we're running this way and that way, shove us some food, we're like, we're consecrating it. What does it say? We're making it holy. It's made holy by the word of God and prayer, a meal. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We can do that in our, something as basic as eating. We see here we're called to thank God for our marriages, the opposite of what the false teachers were calling. We're to thank God for the food we have to eat. We have hearts that are full of thankfulness, and obviously that's not limited to these two things. So many things we can thank the Lord for, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. But I pray you can see, I hope you got a little bit, a sense of urgency. We're in the last days. There are false teachers. There'll be more coming. So we need greater clarity in what is true. But even in the midst of all that, we should have hearts that are thankful. Often, if you bow with me, we'll close this word in prayer. Oh, Lord, I pray that that which is from you, you would seal in our hearts. You would give us grace to live out. I pray for anyone struggling in their marriage. Lord, they would turn to you. They would turn to other people outside help. They would fight for their marriage. Oh, Lord, I pray as a church, 
We'd be able to fight for each other's marriages. Oh, Lord. Help us to develop actual daily habits of of thanking you for our food, Lord. Break our routines. Break our normalcy, Lord. You are the living God. You provide what we need. We thank you for that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.